As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. 
investigating the um, the girls at Bega. Twenty twenty two already seems to have made its mark as a year of sudden celebrity deaths and shocking violent crime. After two years of uncertainty and great change the world over, it's all a bit disconcerting, to say the least. This week we hear again from legendary homicide detective Roland Legg, who takes us back to 1997, which was a year of similar unforeseen upheaval and strife. A loose coalition led by the United States had been waging war on and off on Iraq for six years by then, with no sign of resolution. And 1997 saw the sudden deaths of Princess Diana, Michael Hutchins, Gianni Versace, who was stalked by a mentally ill fan and murdered in front of his own home, and Bill Cosby's son Ennis, who was the victim of random gun violence in Los Angeles, to name just a few. In Australia, we were shocked by the murders of three children that year. The responsibility of finding justice for the families of all three fell ultimately to Roland Legg, and his team of detectives. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. In Moi, in Victoria's La Trobe Valley, 14-month-old Jaden Lesky was left by his young mum Belinda with her boyfriend Greg Damasevich while she went for a rare night out. She never saw her child again. In Bega, in southern New South Wales, two families awoke to discover their teenage daughters were missing after a routine camp out with their friends. They were by then miles away, having been abducted by two troubled young men with no boundaries and nothing to lose. We begin this conversation with Roland Legg by discussing the so-called Bega schoolgirls. On the night of the 5th of October 1995, 15-year-old Lauren Barry and 16-year-old Nicole Collins were camping with their friends Sarah and Rebecca and their horses at their regular spot in a paddock close to Nicole's family home in Tarthra, just outside Bega. Nicole's dad had set them up as usual and would check on them routinely throughout the weekend, as would Lauren's older brother. On this particular weekend, they were celebrating Lauren Barry's 15th birthday. On the Saturday night, Nicole and Lauren were feeling a bit left out because both Sarah and Rebecca had their boyfriends with them by the campfire. Nicole had not long broken up with her boyfriend, whom she believed was probably in attendance at a house party not too far away. At some point, she and Lauren decided to walk to the party so she could talk to him. They left the campsite at around 10pm, just missing Lauren's brother, who called to check on them again at around 10 past 10. When they didn't return to the campsite that night, their friends assumed they'd walked as far as Nicole's house and gone inside to bed. It wasn't until Nicole's parents asked after them in the morning that the alarm was raised. Lauren Barry and Nicole Collins were reported missing. They became known as the Bega schoolgirls and a recently taken school photo of them saturated the media. Even though it seemed like the whole country was on the lookout for these two girls, the days dragged into weeks without a sighting or a clue. It's now nine days since two teenage girls disappeared from southern New South Wales. Lauren Barry and Nicole Collins have seemingly disappeared from a camping trip without a trace. Detective Mark Winterflood of New South Wales Police led the inquiry, 
but it was a tip-off from a local copper that eventually pointed him in the right direction. The local constable had a gut feeling about two men he thought the detectives should at least have a look at. 28-year-old Leslie Alfred Camilleri and 23-year-old Lindsay Hoani Beckett, who were well known to police in the area and had literally hundreds of convictions between them for violent assaults, theft and drug trafficking. Leslie Alfred Camilleri fits the profile of so many of Australia's most violent offenders. He was born the sixth child of a young woman with severe mental health issues in one of Sydney's most disadvantaged postcodes. His earliest years were characterised by extreme deprivation and he had no contact with his biological father until his mid-teens. Like many children with similar backgrounds, by the time he was of primary school age, Leslie Camilleri was substantially behind his peers developmentally, which led to his being ostracised, teased and illiterate. He was observed by teachers to have poor impulse control and to be prone to frustration that led to outbursts of destructive behaviour, which further exacerbated his being ostracised by his peers and isolated by his teachers. He was declared uncontrollable at the age of 10, removed from his mother's care and introduced to the brutal boys' home system. He absconded at 12, becoming a street kid in Sydney's King's Cross. Camilleri made his first appearance before a magistrate at 15 and was returned to the boys' home system. He was 29 years old when he was convicted of the rape and murders of Nicole Barry and Lauren Collins and sentenced to life imprisonment, never to be released. His co-accused, Lindsay Beckett, was born in one of the most disadvantaged corners of New Zealand as a result of the rape of his 15-year-old mother. This is apparently all the information he's ever had regarding the identity of his father. Beckett moved to Australia as a teenager and immediately embarked on a life of theft, drug use and violence. He became a teenage parent himself, fathering three children in quick succession with an equally young and vulnerable partner. She subsequently made allegations of regular violence and rape during their relationship. No wonder then that the local bigger policeman who knew Camilleri and Beckett well told Detective Winterflood he believed they were both more than capable of a crime as serious as abducting two girls. The pieces fell into place very quickly from that point on. Beckett, who is of lower than average intelligence, was seen by several witnesses in the days before the girls went missing carrying a very noticeable pink television around in the back of the car that he and Camilleri were known to drive, a blue Ford Telstar. Early inquiries turned up the fact that a pink television had been sighted by the side of the road close to the camping spot where the girls had last been seen. Having taken it out of the car to make room for the girls, obviously neither Camilleri nor Beckett had thought to hide it in any way before driving off to commit the abduction and ultimately, the double murder. Beckett was brought in for an interview not long after the local constable's tip-off. On the 12th of November 1997, just over a month after the abduction of the Bega schoolgirls, Lindsay Beckett led detectives to Fiddler's Green Creek, which runs through dense bushland in a remote pocket of Victoria's East Gippsland. It's around 200 kilometres from Bega, and it's where he pointed out the location of the remains of Lauren Barry and Nicole Collins. During the journey to the site and during the walkthrough, he also provided detectives with details of the events of the night and the morning in question. One was restrained on the ground, one was hands tied behind the back to the tree. To the tree, yeah. Okay. And to your knowledge, Les got to the car. 
before anything happened, is that right? Yes. Right. And he'd given you instructions of what he wanted done? Yeah. Okay. In time, police learned that Lauren and Nicole accepted a lift in the Ford Telstar that just happened to be driving along the dark highway within minutes of leaving their friends around the campfire. The occupants of the car, Leslie Camilleri and Lindsay Beckett, had been driving around aimlessly for hours, drinking beer and injecting each other with amphetamines. As soon as they were in the car, the girls were overpowered at knife point. The men told them if they cooperated, they'd be delivered safely back to the campsite. But over the following 12 hours, the girls were raped repeatedly, sometimes while the car was in motion and sometimes by the side of the road. The first attack took place at a rubbish dump not far from Lauren's home. By the time Nicole's parents realised something was wrong the next morning, the girls were already at Fiddler's Green Creek in Victoria. Having clearly given up on the idea of being delivered safely back to their friends, Lindsay Beckett told detectives later that Nicole Barry's last words were, you're going to kill me, aren't you? This is how it played out from Roland Legg's perspective. That's a significant one because of the horror they went through leading up to it and the way they were disposed of and what was done to them at the end. It makes me think about you having to then spend time and interview those offenders who are among some of the most troubling offenders we can think of in terms of their cruelty and the lack of remorse and just there's so much about it that's so troubling. One of them was remorseful. Okay. Beckett was remorseful to a certain degree. They had already been uh, identified uh, prior to our becoming involved. I, we were on call. My crew was on call. I got a call from the Bairnsdale detectives, Bairnsdale CIB as it was then, as the closest um, Victorian detectives office to Bega and uh, uh, the Bega detectives who did a mighty job uh, that should never be overlooked um, had, had been looking for the girls for a couple of weeks uh, since they went missing at Tarthra uh, where they were abducted. They identified who was responsible because the Beckett and Camilleri had seen the girls at the side of the road in Tarthra taken a stolen television out of the car that they were in to put the girls in it. So they were unknown to the victims, weren't they, to yes. Lauren Barry yeah. and uh, so the, Nicole Collins? They did yeah, not know them. Yeah. So then they they tortured them and, and, and I won't go into the details, but mm. the, just they were just treated horrifically for eight hours down the Princess Highway and at uh, Can River they turned right to go uh, north again. So... The Bairnsdale police detectives rang me to say that the bigger guys had been in touch and they had Beckett on board and they were trying to work out where the girls were and where the mur- where they'd been murdered because Beckett had given them some background. So um, I said, look, it may be back in New South Wales, it may be in the ACT, or it may be in Victoria, so we have to let you know. So it was, that was early afternoon, I think. And then well into the evening, I was called again at home and told that they'd found the bodies at Fiddler's Green Creek, um, 10 kilometres in chart inside the Victorian border. So the fact that he said that that's where they were murdered uh, meant that it was our investigation, which was pretty tough for the bigger detectives who'd done such a great job. So um, uh, I sent a couple of uh, 
fellows from the crew down there that night with the forensic people to begin doing what had to be done down there. Uh, Russell Sheather, uh, one of the senior detectives, um, put the brief together and he was one of the ones that went down with Steve Fife, one of the sergeants. They did a great job and Ro Russell did a mighty job ultimately putting the brief together because it was a very, very complex brief. Mm. So then the next morning... Um, I got some warrants, went to the magistrate's court, got warrants for them both. Beckett was uh, still in custody in um, in the ACT and uh, Camilleri is in custody in Sydney um, for car thefts, I think it was. So then we went up there and spent a month um, putting it all together. We couldn't get hold of Camilleri. We went to the Sydney Supreme Court on the Monday um, where he was making an application for bail withdrew his application when he heard when his when his lawyer told him the homicide squad from Melbourne were there he withdrew his bail application to the Supreme Court. He wants to stay there. And we had we had to wait until we had a over the following weeks we had a detective from the homicide squad in Sydney attend every court where he, he was to appear at later times and have the matters attended to so that he could no longer be held in New South Wales and then he had no out. So then a team of uh, homicide detectives from Melbourne who were in New South Wales doing another job uh, brought him back for us to Melbourne and then we interviewed him. But anyway, that was, was how we finally got hold of him. But there was just masses of forensic and uh, follow-up evidence that everywhere they'd stop with the girls, I mean... Beckett identified, I think, a, a, a VB box at one of the places where they conducted, uh, where they carried out some of the rapes, um, and the box was still there, and, and that that sort of thing. And so there was a there was a mass of um, forensic matters to be tied together. But yes, at the end of that, um, the presiding Supreme Court Judge Justice Vincent in Melbourne expressed the fact that he regretted having to. Um, having to give Beckett only 35 years, I think it was, because uh, of the horror of it all, but because Beckett had cooperated, he uh, didn't um, put him for the term of his natural life. But his, uh, his words in sentencing Camilleri was, You've, you have forfeited your right to ever walk amongst us again. Thank God. Yeah, he's, so Camilleri's he's a bad, bad man. never to be released, yeah. The girls weren't the first... Crimes no. that he was in, involved in. No. He was convicted of Prue Bird's murder? We, we weren't aware of that at the time. Yeah. He was arrested for that after. Um, he and, he and uh, Beckett had, had abducted a girl uh, in Civic in Canberra, which is like the Canberra CBD, and she would have been a victim prior to um I mean, he would have Lauren kept victimising young girls but, forever had you not arrested but, him but at the time. But she escaped. She... Somehow escaped before they killed her. They were going to throw her, I think, off one of those high cliffs on the Hume Highway uh, on the way to Sydney, north of Canberra, uh, down to the river. I think uh, it was how they were going to dispose of her. But um, um, she escaped and hid in a wombat hole and went to a farmhouse. Oh my God. And she um, she uh, was one of our witnesses at the uh, at the trial into the murders of Lauren and Nicole. Was this matter during your time in Maui or was it after your time in Maui that year? No, no. Maui was June, July and um, this was, I think, 
uh, when was it? November. November. Right. We'll be back to hear about the gruelling Jaden Lesky investigation after the break. But first, some background on the Prue Bird case, which we mentioned a moment ago. If you can believe it, the details of the abduction and murder of 13-year-old Prue from her home in suburban Melbourne make it clear that Leslie Camilleri was an even bigger threat than he appeared to be when he was convicted for his crimes against Lauren and Nicole. It turns out that Camilleri abducted and murdered Prue Bird a full five years before that night in Bega. And in this case, it appears to have been a very targeted and pre-planned crime. And far from being a small-town bully and car thief, Police alleged Camilleri stalked Prue Bird in the company of some of the most violent men in Australia. There are some who believe the teenager's murder is part of the biggest act of domestic terrorism ever carried out in this country, the Russell Street bombing. In 2014, the ABC's Australian Story aired a two-part episode about the case. Prue's mum, Jenny, recounted the day Prue went missing and her demand for an increased reward that finally got the investigation moving and turned up the unlikely name of Leslie Camilleri. I can remember everything about that day. It started like any other day. It was summertime and we were going to the local bars for the afternoon. I opened... Uh, Pro's bedroom door. It was one o'clock. Pro was sound asleep. And you didn't wake Pro up. Oh, hell would break loose. And I thought, look, she knows where I am and she'll ring me at the bars. She heated up some cream corn, which was her favourite food. And for Prue, she wouldn't go anywhere until she'd finished eating. Prue loved to eat, loved her food. We stayed at the bars till closing time, which was six o'clock we left. I seen Prue, the meal on the table, and it hadn't been touched. Nothing had been eaten off it. No note in the kitchen. And as all as a bugger as Prue was, we did leave notes. Jenny made a phone call to Prue's friend to see whether or not Prue was with her. And I said, no, I hadn't seen Prue that day. We hadn't communicated. I just knew from that moment, oh, my God, my little girl's in trouble somewhere. It's like she's just vanished from the face of the earth. I never stopped trying to work out ways to do something. Then about 16 years went by and I seen a reward offered for another case. Victoria Police are offering a $1 million reward for the missing link in one of the state's longest-running murder investigations. They also say... I found out that Elizabeth Memory had had a $1 million reward offered, so I rang and I said, well, you know, the Memory's got a $1 million for Elizabeth, I'd like a $1 million for Prudence. And he said, you take 500 or you get nothing. So I took the 500. A $100,000 reward was posted eight years ago. It's now hoped the increase to $500,000 will lead to a breakthrough. They give me hope that, you know, maybe that money will make somebody talk. Out of the reward for the 500000 eventually Camilleri's name came out.
23-year-old Leslie Camilleri today pleaded guilty to the murder of 13-year-old Prue Bird. Police originally linked the teenager's abduction to the Russell Street bombings. But today, prosecutors told the judge they will no longer allege that payback was the motive in Prue Bird's murder, although no further explanation was given as to why the case against Camilleri has changed. The Russell Street bombing link was dropped for a couple of reasons, I think. Um, first of all, Camilleri was never going to plead guilty if that was going to be pushed, because that would have meant that he was potentially implicating other people. The prosecution simply couldn't prove it. There's a difference between knowing something, being able to prove it, and then being able to prove it to the required standard in court. And I asked why, and they said, because Camilleri won't plead guilty. Camilleri has so far refused to disclose the location of Prue Bird's remains. There's a link in the show notes and on our Facebook page to those Australian Story episodes if you'd like to know more about the Prue Bird story. It's unbelievable and her mum Jenny is amazing. Thank you to patrons Katie Gallagher, Amy Gruber, Josie Caron, Samantha Dunn, Katrine Grok and Renee Ellis. 
where Jaden was being babysat. Greg didn't notice at the time, and it was still laying on the grass in the front yard the following morning when police arrived to investigate the whereabouts of the missing toddler. For his part, Damasevich had by then already told Belinda a number of completely different stories about where her son was. There's even more to it than that, believe it or not, but we've reissued a previous episode of Australian True Crime featuring journalist Michael Gleeson, who'll fill in the blanks for you, including the prosecution's theory as to what happened to little Jaden that night, which is to say the theory painstakingly put together by our guest today and his team. Roland Legg was on leave the day Jaden's remains were found and his good friend and fellow detective, Jeff Marr, was running his crew. Jeff Marr was the on-call crew and uh, he rang me up at home and said, I think we found something you might be interested in and uh, sure enough it was... There was no doubt when, when he got the call as the on-call crew that there was a, a child floating in Blue Rock Dam. There was no doubt who it was. Yeah, and of course you got there very quickly and there's actually vision of you there on the scene. I mean, on one hand, I guess it's a breakthrough in your case, but on the other hand, it's incredibly sad and moving. And I remember as you were telling me what else you found, I remember saying to you, it's so heartbreaking to me that Belinda, obviously his mum, obviously packed so well for her baby to be away for the night. That's yes, what I always it think. All, it was all still there with him, mm. which we had a theory as to why that was the case. But, um, yeah, we we were confident that he was in water all along. We had all the waterways up there regularly searched by helicopter and divers and water police. And um, Blue Rock Dam was a focus because that was um, a place where our suspect used to fish and uh, had actually taken Jaden there in the past. So um, we were very keen that, Blue Rock Dam be thoroughly searched near the, where he was found, actually. But that, um, it's a long story, but um, the search didn't occur the way that we had hoped that it would, and um, that had nothing to do with anybody down there. That was a Melbourne decision. But um, um, as it turned out, that's where Jaden's body was finally located. And the zip had given way uh, on, on the... Um, the sleep suit that, that he'd uh, been tied to the crowbar in and uh, finally the um, yeah the zip gave way and his little body popped to the surface. It was such a big, you know, the big story at the time, but I feel like as the years have gone on, it's like you, the way it was all reported and sensationalised, I think over the years you just realise like it's, it was a tragedy then, but it, you just appreciate how much of a tragedy it was and how Belinda, how she was treated. And also the, the people involved in investigating. That's what I mean for, you know, Roland and Jeff and, you know, the other people there who are fathers and mm. who are human beings to remove a baby's body from that situation. And I've seen photographs of his little belongings laid out so carefully on this forensic mat or whatever it was and I understand that's for forensic purposes but also I was just very touched by how gently and carefully you know seeing the way the divers carried him ashore and and all of that it was a big day well so I mean certainly you're always sensitive to that but there are forensic issues too um there's a condition that when a body has been in water for a long time once it 
is um, um, exposed to the air, what they call saponification, and it, it, the body will virtually turn to soap. So um, uh, that night, and it was it was a hot day, um, uh, middle of summer. So that that night, uh, the, well that afternoon, we had the pathologist come down, and she said, "Look, we, we just got to get him on ice fast." So um, um, I got one of the police helicopters down from Melbourne to Morwell Airport, sent the local divisional van off to get bags and bags and bags of ice. Um, and um, we we wrapped him in the ice and uh, had him conveyed to um, to the Morwell Airport. And then the um, the pathologist flew back. Shelley Robertson flew back uh, on the police helicopter with the body and straight to the mortuary to go into refrigeration so that um, so that it was preserved as as well as it could be. But so you're taking those things. I mean, we do try to always, um, um, you know, naturally treat bodies with respect and, um, and, and, and families and witnesses and everyone else affected with respect. But you've got to also be conscious of, um, of those forensic things at the same time. And well, sometimes there's a, um, uh, sometimes there are difficult clashes between the importance of focusing on what needs to be preserved from an evidentiary point of view or an investigative consideration that might seem harsh on a particular person. I know uh, um, Belinda was very uh, resentful of the fact that she wasn't allowed to go down when the body was found. Um, there were all sorts of things happening there at that time. Um, she's since written some very very uh, nice letters to me um, uh, after after the trial, apologising for some of the behave, her behaviour at the time, which I accepted her apologies, and um, we we exchanged some uh, some emails, which appeared in a in a book with her permission. But uh, just so a shocking situation are, for a mother to be in. Uh, and, and I don't think it's any secret the uh, the issues that uh, we had with Belinda at the time. But um, sometimes um, some of the issues we have with people is just that that difficult decision that you have to make that something you're doing or not doing might upset someone. And th this wasn't the reason for our problems with Belinda. That was another that was another matter. But um, uh, as far as um, people getting upset with things we do, that just so many things have to be considered. The reason you're there, one of the reasons you're there is because you, you have the, the higher viewpoint and you know that this is important today, that you want to be able to be down there and where your son's been found. But a year from now, at the time of trial, what's going to be most important to you is that we've done the right job here today in gathering the evidence, in doing the forensics and doing everything right. And part of that is that you can't come here today, you know? So... I think it's part of your job is to do that for families, isn't it? Is to sometimes keep them away from situations because well, it could complicate it later. If you let them do whatever they want, stomp around crime scenes or whatever, then a year from now they're going to look at you and go, why did you let me do that? And some of it is beyond an evidentiary situation too. You ideally also want to have time to discuss it 
with the person before you expose them to it. Because uh, apart from um, being respectful of their feelings and the sensitivities there, you're leaving yourself open too. Um, in fact, there were you know there were times when people would ask to see photographs of uh, of their loved ones and we actually designed a form for them to sign just removing us from any responsibility which sounds a little callous but um, on the one hand you want to give them that opportunity the other hand you need to make them absolutely aware of the effect it might have on them I remember a discussion that I had with parents in, in their lounge room and uh, he, he was very keen to see photos. And on the mantelpiece was a, a photograph that had appeared in the Herald Sun of this beautiful, smiling young girl. And I said, look, that's how you want to remember her, you know. When we uh, found her, that is very different. And you want to remember her like that. And uh, this went on and on and on of him saying, you know, I really want to, which you can un- I can understand. That's his decision. But you, on the one hand, you want to save people from from that if you can, but he's fully entitled to do it. And, and if that gives him a proper closing and he is sure that that's what he'd prefer to do, then you know, that's up to him. We're all, As I said before, when it comes to investigators, we're all different. Some people are assisted by something that I might find impossible to do and vice versa. So, Yeah, I have a mum who contacted us about doing a podcast and in the end I decided not to, but she sent me the autopsy photos of her son. Like she's just so invested and thinks that it's an unlawful killing and the homicide detectives and coroner don't think it was. So that's part of her process and she obviously looks at these photos a lot. And most, I think most people would say they could never do that, but that's part of her thing. I had 18 years in the homicide squad, and if a relative of mine, particularly a very close relative like that, yeah, um, went through that, then I couldn't do it. So, mm. as I said, I'm not being critical, but yeah. we're all different. That's a big year for you, Roland, 97. And in the Lesky case, you've been through what was a difficult case for a lot of reasons and there was media scrutiny of the way you were handling it. There were issues with Belinda because, you know, she was a mother in a difficult position. As a mum who's left your child with someone to be babysat and your child hasn't survived, I can believe that there could be an element of denial or of not wanting to believe that that could have happened that way because then I'd feel guilty myself about having left my child in that situation. So it was a hard case for you to work on for a lot of reasons. And then you didn't get a conviction, which gave all of Australia the shits, to be honest. How do you as a man, as a human being, cope? Do you take a break after that? Do you ring up and say, I need a holiday, I'm going to the beach for two weeks? What do you do? What you do is you get called to Hastings where a man has uh, strangled his partner, wrapped her in plastic, put a shovel in the boot and the body in the boot, couldn't be bothered burying her and went to the local police station. She said, she's in the boot, come and get her. That was the next job we got. So uh, so just from one, one to another, I suppose. But um, no, um, look, uh, because of the, um, the fact that it was a totally circumstantial case, the Lesky matter, and uh, high profile, you don't always do it, 
um, we took the brief of evidence to the Office of Public Prosecutions before we decided to charge him. Uh, the consensus was that um, the case was pursuable. We charged him. When Jaden's body was found, um, not only where we thought, but with the injuries we suspected, the consensus was that it was a stronger case. So um, you can't predict what a jury's going to do. Uh, we would obviously disappointed, but you have to accept it. Mm. Do you think they were just bamboozled by all the craziness that was around the case, by the pig's head gang, by all the drama of everyone had been engaged to everybody else and married to everyone and it, it took on this... I used to this... say the family tree's a forest. Yeah. Um, I, uh, Kenny Penfold, uh, the leader of the pig's head group... Yes. ...accepted uh, my criticism of him, uh, which, which was... Um, I'm usually fairly sort of calm, but Kenny found out that I sometimes became a little, got a limit. A little more aggressive <laughs> yeah. on, this, on numerous occasions. And he certainly understood the fact that uh, when I told him that if they hadn't been there that night, life would have been much easier for us. Um, but, look, I suppose, um, well, not suppose, uh, I they were our greatest problem because... Because um, there happened to be a pig's were, head they, thrown they, at the house. They were a defence lawyer's dream. Yeah, on the night that the, a, mean, a baby had, also went missing from the house and was murdered ultimately. And he, 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 he was a character in the witness box apparently, although I wasn't in there of course because I was the final witness, but um, he, he was a bit of a character in the witness box but... Um, he was a problem in the witness box. Uh, there was a fellow by the name of Tubby Hopkinson who's no longer with us, uh, who, who I'm told virtually was frothing at the, the mouth in the witness box. They they were the ideal alternatives. In fact, the day that that um, that Tubby gave evidence, um, I was in the police room at the Supreme Court at the end of court that day talking to the prosecutor, and. Um, some PSOs came in and said, quick, quick, come out in the judge's car park. We, all hell's broken loose. So what had happened was um, Tubby Hopkinson, uh, one of the, although he wasn't one of the pig's head crowd, he stayed behind because I think he was too affected by alcohol and drugs to actually attend to the pig's head throwing. So uh, he wasn't one of, the, um, one of the group, but he was certainly with them earlier in the night and gave evidence. Um, He'd been pursued by the media after court that day because he, he'd been, uh, yeah, obviously they thought he'd be good vision because of having watched him in the witness box. So he jumped over a, a back fence and um, I think he had a rock in one hand and a brick in the other um, in the car park at the Supreme Court with all these, this is when we got out there, um, and these PSOs were around him and, and batons ready to... <laughs> and there's, there's Tubby frothing at the mouth again with a rock. So um, myself and one of my colleagues had to, uh, had to gently talk to Tubby and quietly remove the rock from him and get him in a police car out in Little Burke Street and get him out of there. But um, So that's what, that's what you're dealing with, that's unfortunately. What you're up it was a bit tough. It was frustrating because even though your evidence, I think, clearly clearly demonstrated that 
the pig's so-called pig's head gang of Kenny, his sister. What was his sister's name? Yvonne Penfold. Yvonne, who was a previous girlfriend of Greg Demasevich's, and that's what it was all about. Didn't gain access to to Greg's home that night, and for all the reasons, couldn't have been involved in Jaden's death. Still, there presence that it was just confusing it was all confusing I think to a lot of people and then they were at court all the time and they were creating havoc out the front of the court during the trial and there was criticism of you and of your investigation that you hadn't fingerprinted Greg's home initially to make sure that Kenny's fingerprints weren't inside the house well uh, the the issue issue there was uh, there was an issue made of it first of all um the the uh, positions, the entry positions, um, the only ones available were fingerprinted, where you could not have entered without leaving hands no. or something. And um, also the film, the, the film thing, of the of the interior showed clearly that no one could have come into the house through those. Well, we maintained that um, uh, when they threw the through the pig's head, um, the glass had had smashed and just dropped straight down behind heavy curtains. There was nothing else disturbed in the house. There was no, uh, it was it was wet outside. Um, there was no um, uh, mud on the carpet, no dirt on the carpet. No, that was the frustration. No glass fragments spread around from someone who would then have climbed in. Uh, the the pig's head people had previously been on on reasonable terms with Domasevich and had been in the house previously. So you would expect their, their fingerprints to be in there. And as I say, the entry, uh, the deadlock was uh, locked at the front, deadlock was locked at the back, and the um, the only access was through these windows. Our argument was that the, um, the fact that the windows hadn't been fully broken out or broken out to a greater extent than just the damage done by the pig's head that it was impossible for someone to climb in. And as I said, there was fingerprinting done at those entry points. The only possible way they could have got in was through the broken windows and the, there were no fingerprints around the window frames and no sign of anybody having walked in the mud outside and got in the no mud footprints outside the window. Or evidence anywhere a- else anyway, that look, they had taken look, the child they, or killed the child. Was, or I'm only presenting what our case was. And they had no case to the alternative. So it's so frustrating that that it seems like the chaos and, and the excitement, frankly, around the Pig's Head Gang was what defeated, you know, a pretty strong circumstantial case that you presented. Anyway, the jury accepted the other side. So that that's life. And then if you... Blokes quit over stuff like that, Roland, is in, what I'm trying so to say. Many, in so many things, you still... You still look for a bit of a bright side somewhere, what is it? and a bit of a laugh, and the the, <laughs> the 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 and and you only stay sane if you look for the laughs occasionally. The following day, um, after Jaden first went missing, uh, and we we'd rounded up all all the pig's head crowd far away as San Remo and all sorts of places within twenty four hours, and um, we're talking to them and. And Kenny said, so we were lying down in the grass near the railway line what, watch, watching and we, we seen him go to the bin. Well, we, in, the, in the bin at the front of the house we found twisted tissues with Jaden's blood on them that had been forced up his nose. But anyway, that's by the by. Um, 
So that's why I went to the rubbish bin. But we've seen him leave, and this would have been when um, um, Domasevich was going to Taralgon to collect Belinda Murphy. Anyway, uh, he said, and uh, we've seen him leave, so we, uh, we got Darren, that's the pig's head, Darren Mullane, who was an animal on the field, Kenny told us. Um, and we walked down the driveway and my heart was pumping through my chest and I launched the pig's head and it bounced off and I launched it again and it broke the window. And he said, then we run off and after that they'd in fact thrown rocks at some people walking down Narakan Drive, so hardly the actions of someone who's just stolen a baby. But anyway, they're abusing passers-by and throwing rocks at people who we found, and they confirmed that. Anyway, uh, he said, next morning, I come round the corner, and he said, there's coppers everywhere. And I thought, you've got to be effing joking, don't you? All this for an effing pigshead. <laughs> so it, it, it had a, a ring of truth to it. Oh, it certainly did. As... Let's not forget the other DNA evidence that Kenny left behind on the train tracks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. Um, an officer had to go and find. Well, see, that was an, another bit of humour after after <laughs> after we'd interviewed them. You couldn't make it up. No. After we'd interviewed them, um, I said, um, and he'd told that story, uh, I had a couple of, uh, couple of the crew take him back down to the, to, to the house uh, to uh, just go over it all again to make sure that there was nothing that he forgot. And uh, anyway, after, after he'd been through it all again at the house, he said, oh, there's one more thing. Uh, I wasn't there. They told me this when they got back. They came in just shaking their heads in disbelief. But anyway, um, when I, when they came back to the police station, but um yeah, they were just shaking their heads and he'd taken them back over the road to the railway line and began walking up and down the railway line and they said, what are you doing, Kenny? And he said, oh, I've been told to tell you everything. And they said, yeah. So he started um, started um, uh, walking up and down the railway line and he said, oh, here it is. So with a big smile on his face, he um, held up this um, human stool he held it up. Uh, and they said, what the hell is that? And he said, well, when I do my run-throughs, and you've got to have the background knowledge here that Kenny's, one of Kenny's claims to fame is the fact that he would um, uh, do aggravated burglaries on drug dealers' houses and steal their drugs and their money. So uh, he, he said, when I do my run-throughs, I, I get nervous beforehand, so I have to back one out. <laughs> so... Mm -hmm. um, they said, okay, we'll leave that there. Thanks very much. Although we do have a photo of him holding it up, smiling. Uh, and um, the, the photographer couldn't resist. But um, then um, he started up and down the, the railway line again. And um, they said, what are you looking for now? And he said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah. Anyway, then he picks up this bit of cloth. And um, they said, what's that, Kenny? And he said, um, well, that's my shirt pocket. I needed something to wipe my ass with. So uh, I said, painful. I said to one of the local detectives down at Morwell, I said, "We well, you know now how you work out how many aggravated burglaries <laughs> Kenny's done. You just go to his wardrobe and see how many shirts with got missing pockets." <laughs> I did excited. make contact with Kenny once, maybe a year ago or something, to ask him 
to talk. I just thought, I'll just give Kenny a go. And he, he wanted $2,000 to talk to us on the podcast. I said, oh, don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, I wonder what he, like, being it, maybe more mature, hopefully. No, I don't know. No, he um, still sounds exactly. Reflecting. Like- yeah, I, I remember um, Colin Lovett, Greg Damasovich's QC, who I think died last year. I didn't realise that, but it was obviously like a very, very good QC. But he was describing, you know, the case against Damasovich as a witch hunt. But what what other alternative suspect was there? I mean, I don't understand. It, it, it was suggested, I think, by some people, uh, although leaning the other way, that, uh, that we perhaps didn't uh, investigate the pig's head crowd to the extent that they expected, um, we maintain that we did, and no one else has been suggested. It was either Greg, who's been found not guilty, or the pig's head crowd. No one suggested anybody else having been involved. And as I said, um, he's not guilty. Yep. Yeah, and no one else has popped up since. No. There's been no alternative scenario presented. So another time, Jeff Ma was on leave when there was a a body found in the cemetery, yes, Faulkner, Faulkner, Faulkner Cemetery, cemetery. Yep. and you and your crew attended. Uh, well, you're mainly right. How did that uh, happen? Tell us what, what, what would happen is when, when the crew leader uh, was on leave mm. or unavailable, uh, if if one of his sergeants was very experienced, then he would take over the crew. Mm-hmm. If there wasn't a sergeant on that crew with sufficient experience, then one of the other senior sergeants, one of the other crew leaders would look after the crew. Mm-hmm. So, so you had both crews uh, under you while so, he was on a break? So I, on that occasion, mm-hmm. I was looking after my crew and looking after Jeff Maher's crew. On the morning that, very sadly, Messina Halvargas was found, uh, or her body was found at Faulkner Cemetery, and uh, so for the initial handling the crime scene and the initial few days of the investigation into Messina Halvargas, I was looking after Jeff Mars crew. So it was his crew who had it from the start, but I was just overseeing it at the early stages, and of course, um, yeah, the, the the culprit was the. Um, well-known name now, uh, Peter Dupas. So when when did you and when did Jeff become aware? Because I think it was Messina's case that made Jeff think these are related. This is related to some other cases that I'm aware of and that was what made Jeff actually take over the brief himself and really start pushing this idea that there was one killer out there. I can't remember how long after it happened that Jeff came back from leave, but I can remember uh, us all being there um, late one night and we were, my crew, his crew, I think others involved too, and Jeff was well and truly in charge of it then. I mean, naturally it was his investigation and he um, took control of it when he came back. But uh, we were all there this night when we were putting, identifying the others involved. Um, yeah, right. You know. Um, the signatures, the Nicole things. Nicole Patterson and. Yeah. Um, Margaret uh, Ma. Margaret Ma. Mm. Um, and, and it was all being linked. So. And the penny was dropping. It was a great, great result, ultimately. Amazing result. And again, mm. 
an offender who would have kept offending yeah. was really escalating. Oh, I don't think anyone doubts that mm. and the horrendous nature of what he did. Did you look at um, Kathleen Downs's murder at the time? Because obviously he's oh, been since no uh, one of, into for that. When, when that occurred, one of my senior detectives ultimately, who then became one of my sergeants on my crew, had been on another crew as a senior detective when Kathleen Downs was killed. It's a terrible story. She was in a, an old age home yes. and, and uh, someone snuck into her room in the middle of the night. So I was aware of the details of it because uh, he was on Luch Rover's crew, Mick Daly, his name. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. He's now in charge of the firearms squad. I don't know what they're called now. He's an inspector there. But um, Mick still followed that carefully when he left Luch's crew and came to my crew and then still... When, when he became a sergeant on my crew. So yeah, he, he followed it right through. It's one of those frustrating ones because they haven't mm. been able to get a conviction. That's right. Yeah. So. But uh, he's been, he was, was he named by a coroner or court as being absolutely. the like, yeah, the likely. Yeah, that's a shocker. She was 95, I think. And also in the context of the whole story, Dupas's wife or partner at the time actually married a nurse from the psych ward at Pentridge. She, they talk about the context of their relationship at the time and they had had an argument. I think she had said that she was leaving him and kicked him out of their home and then Kathleen Downs was attacked and murdered very soon after that. So it really fits the larger profile of his offending because his his offending career had been well ongoing since he was 15 years of age. How frustrating is that too when you find out that you're working on somebody who has had such a long offending career and has been allowed out by judge after judge after like the sentencing has been so inappropriate. Yes, I, I don't have a great uh, knowledge of what penalties or all of Dupas is involved in, but I think we've all had had cases and probably multiple cases where we've looked back and thought, well, could this have been avoided? Um, to look at it in a, in a different vein, but it's an interesting story, I suppose. Mm. Um, uh, my crew uh, uh, investigated the death of a lady at, uh, at Frankston and she'd been pursued um, by a fellow with whom she was associated down a street knocked on the door, let me in, let me in, trying to save herself. And just as the lady in the house opened the door, um, uh, the offender blew off the back of her head with a shotgun uh, right in front of the lady who opened the door. Anyway, when when we finally um, uh, arrested him, uh, he'd been uh, convicted of a murder back in the late 60s he stabbed a girl to death in his girlfriend to death in Chadston, and I think he was supposed to be hung after Ronald Ryan. Um, anyway, it was commuted to life imprisonment. Then, uh, after he was released, he'd committed a rape and not done a lot of time. When you look at, like, I don't think I've ever heard of anyone getting the maximum for rape or armed robbery. But anyway, um, so then after that, after he was released on the rape, he um, he did this to this, this lady who had two teenage children at, uh, at Frankston. So after we'd, uh, after we'd charged him, we're driving him into the custody centre 
And uh, I was in the front passenger seat and the detective's in the back with him. And uh, I said, you know, Lee, uh, if they'd hung you back in the 60s, you wouldn't have committed that rape and Tracy would still be alive. And I thought I was about to get an earful and there was silence for a little while and all he said was, yeah, you're right, mate. So he acknowledged it in himself. Now he is in for the term of his natural life, but um, he avoided that a couple of times. Thank you to our guest today, the wonderful Roland Legg. Thank you to patrons Lola Cherry Cola, Madeline Glover, Kerry Solomon, Michelle Lane, Cherie Unwin, Stephanie Yablonski, Alyssa Hampton, Renee Geddes, Victoria Broadway and Tricia Briffer. Don't forget there's a lot of homework for you to do if you'd like to follow up on the various threads that we've had weaving through this episode. Links in the show notes and on our Facebook page. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.